Hello, and welcome to Voices of Nexus, where experts discuss and debate issues surrounding mental health. Here in the U.S., it is a sad but common observation that our mental health system is broken. People who need help often can't or don't know how to get it, and resources remain underutilized due to stigma or lack of awareness. Many experience crisis before any intervention. Given the added pressures we face today, these faults are doubly exposed. But there are bright spots. There are visionaries working tirelessly to create a better tomorrow and move us from hopeless to hopeful. Here on Voices of Nexus, you will learn about good progress being made as it relates to the mental health of women, youth, and those in the justice system. This podcast is part of the larger Nexus Initiative, sponsored by Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Inc. Please check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook. Hi, I'm Gabe Howard, and I am excited to be hosting a three-part podcast series, Voices of Nexus. In these podcasts, we will explore the experiences people have as they live with mental health challenges. Through their own stories, our guests bring to life the strengths, weaknesses, and gaps that exist in the mental health system. Each episode focuses on a community with unique and largely unmet mental health needs, including women, youth, and people in contact with the justice system. I hope these conversations spark new ideas about how we can all be part of the solution on the front lines of mental health. Welcome, everyone. My name is Gabe Howard, and I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of welcoming two very cool guests today, Kevin Early and his father, Pete Early. Kevin Early was, for the lack of a better word, the subject of the 2007 book, Crazy, written by Pulitzer Prize nominee and Kevin's father, Pete Early. Now, since the publication of Crazy, both Pete and Kevin have gone on to be incredible mental health advocates, helping to educate people about the seriousness of untreated mental illness and giving people hope that with treatment, recovery is possible. Kevin and Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Before we dive into the meat of our subject, I want to ask Kevin, how did it feel to have your life written about by your father and then published nationally? And of course, all these years later, are you happy that you agreed to it? Well, I, I was always under the impression that if the book would help other people by telling my story, then it's a good thing to do. So that's why I agreed to do it. Uh, for me personally, it did take several years for me. When it came out, I skimmed through it. It did take like five or six years for me to actually sit down and actually read it uh, because it is pretty traumatic part of my life and a part of my life that I like to move forward from. So, I mean, my understanding is that instead of hiding or feeling ashamed about having a mental illness, just embrace it and run towards it. And I feel that by having it out there, it kind of demystifies it and it's something real. It's something tangible that other people go through. I'm not the only one who goes through it. And you learn that by embracing it instead of being ashamed of it. Kevin, thank you so much. Now, Pete, I have a similar question for you. Are, are, are you happy that you did it all these years later? Yes, I am. I think when I wrote the book, initially, I did not use Kevin's first name. I used his middle name and I did that for two reasons. One was that I wanted to give him a little protection if uh, after exposing all this, he wanted to distance himself from it. 
Um, he's called Michael in the book, not Kevin. Kevin went on to become a mental health peer specialist. So he embraced the fact that he has a, a mental illness. I was very grateful that he would allow me to tell his story. But I also have to be brutally honest here. One of the reasons I wrote the book was I hoped that it would make him known or at least make mental health professionals realize that I had um, access to the media. And I wanted the social workers, I wanted the therapists, I wanted the doctors to know that this is my son, I will write about you, you better help him. And uh, that was my ulterior motive. Uh, the idea for the book actually came when I was desperate. Kevin had first been uh, arrested and was in the hospital. And I called the two most powerful people I knew, Don Graham at the Washington Post, who suggested I write an article for the Post, which I did, and Mike Wallace of CBS 60 Minutes. And Mike actually called the hospital and told them that he was interested in following um, Kevin Michael early. And I believe that's part of the reason why, instead of after three days, uh, Kevin was there for a longer period to get stabilized. So I had an ulterior motive. Yes, uh, I was wanting to do something to expose how bad our criminal justice system was when it came to people with mentals, but I also wanted to have a hammer there, hopefully to get people to do the right thing when it came to caring for him. I really think it doesn't matter who you are listening. If you're a parent, I think everybody understands the parent first philosophy and writer second. And of course, Pete, you are no different. To get to the story of sort of how we ended up here, Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's talk about before the book and sort of the impetus for the book. Did Kevin have any mental health screenings or did you have any idea that anything was wrong before the the impetus for all of this occurred? You know, as a parent, one of the first things you do, Gabe, is you look back and say, should I have seen warning signs? What should I have done? Was there something there? And I honestly never saw those. Uh, Kevin was very artistic. And of course, parents like to think that and um, that someone has a mental illness, they think outside the box oftentimes, they're very artistic, born with fire type thing. And he also walked to the beat of a different drummer. I mean, he did not really care what his peers thought. Uh, I saw both of those things as attributes. I didn't see them as warning signs of mental illness. The first signs that Kevin was having mental strife was in telephone calls with me while he was in college. And one was very alarming when I called him every Sunday and we, and we talked and he told me that he had taken four or five homeless people out to have breakfast. And then he told me he wasn't sure if he really took them out or that was his imagination and he was having trouble discerning between reality and, and fantasy. And of course, that really alarmed me. At that point, the only thing that made me pause was uh, a few months earlier, he had told me some stories that seemed really out of character for Kevin. But I didn't 
I thought, well, maybe, you know, when you're in college, you do things that often don't please your parents or whatever. So I didn't, no alarm bells came off. And then that incident uh, led to me driving and seeing him in person. And it became very clear that he was having mental issues. Kevin, before that time or before a mental health diagnosis, like an official one, did you suspect that you were having any mental health issues or did everything seem, for lack of a better word, normal to you? I did have a period before I was supposed to graduate. I remember writing my dad a letter and telling him that I needed some time off. I wanted a break. Uh, I didn't think things were going well. I, I needed like a week or two to just kind of just relax and not worry about school. And I remember his response was sort of like, you're almost there. You put in a lot of work, kind of suck it up. You can get through this. Just keep going forward. And then I had a mental break. So, I mean, looking back at that, that was not probably the best response, but um, we didn't really know much about mental health and we learned everything kind of the hard way going through. Cause I didn't, I didn't know much about mental health myself. So I didn't really see any warning signs and being at art school, you're around a lot of eccentric people who are pretty liberal and pretty creative. So there's a lot of eccentric things going on anyway, so I don't know what could have been done that would have helped my cause. So a lot of times we know that mental illnesses surface in young men between the ages of 17 and like 25 or when they're in college. And I had a lot of guilt um, in the beginning because of what Kevin's talking about. Actually, he had told me um, that... and. I, Kevin will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he'd seen the Titanic movie or the idea that he should take a year off and just kind of travel the country and do his artwork and paint. And as any, I think most fathers would respond, it was, oh yeah, that's not going to happen. You're going to finish school. And I also, uh, my father had said, once you finish college, you're on your own. And I also said to him, hey, you graduate from college, you need to find a job, you need to go to work, you need to be on your own. And only in retrospect did I fear that that's what actually was the flare that sent off his mental illness, the pressure, et cetera. Later, I talked to Dr. Tom Ensel, who uh, used to run the National Institutes of Mental Health, and he told me that mental illnesses are like an electric cord. And there's a part of the sheath that's thin and everything goes fine for a while. And then something happens and it causes the, the thin part to burst and there's a fire. And that, of course, made me think, wow, did I somehow cause Kevin's mental illness to bubble forth? And uh, that's something I had to deal with. Now, eventually, Kevin was arrested once he was arrested, did he get a mental health screening or any mental health care? Did things change from there? Well, this is when I'm going to put on the advocate hat because I was quite outraged how Kevin was treated. And it's what prompted me to write the book. But what happened was I took Kevin to an emergency room and we waited for four hours. And finally, Kevin said, there's nothing wrong with me. And this is after he had told me, asked me, how uh, I would feel if someone I loved killed himself. And I had picked him up in New York where he'd been wandering around for almost a week. He, he was just had this uh, delusion that he was on a mission from God. 
I literally had to grab a doctor and he basically um, came in the room with his hands up and said, there's not much I can do because Kevin didn't believe he was sick. He didn't want to take medication and he, we'd been there for four hours. So clearly there wasn't any kind of uh, requirement from dangerousness. Virginia required you to be a danger yourself or others, imminent danger. And then he asked him, who's the president of the United States? To which Kevin replied, that idiot George Bush. What does this statement, crying over spilt milk, mean? And he explained that. And could, I think, could he count backward from 100 for till 90? And then that was it. I mean, that was it. And Kevin got up and, and left. Of course, he wasn't getting better. He decompensated. Uh, the doctor actually said to me, bring him back after he tries to hurt someone or hurt you. I remember watching him with tin foil on his head, watching TV to keep the CIA from reading his thoughts. And that's when he broke into a stranger's house. Luckily, they weren't there. He broke in and take a bubble bath and it, five police officers and an attack dog dragged him out. I was so angry that the law wanted to punish him for a crime he'd committed when he wasn't thinking clearly, and I couldn't get him help when he needed it. So finally, to answer your question, Gabe, no, there was no mental health screening. And when we went to court, the attorney said, do not mention mental illness. If you try to go the insanity, he's going to end up in a state institution and he'll never get out, which displayed their ignorance too. But if you look at Kevin's legal record, there's never any mention of mental illness. And he was handled just like anyone else. Kevin, everything that your dad just told us, it's an amazing story. That's obviously from his perspective. What do you recall of those events? Well, to me, it was kind of like an out-of-body experience a little bit. There's a lot of disassociation. So it's like I was watching myself in third person, like I was watching a movie or something. There are some things I remember very, very vividly, and I still remember. There are other things that are like completely blacked out that I don't remember at all. And people will mention, hey, you did this when you were sick, and I don't remember it at all. So I guess it's kind of like a Manchurian candidate type of experience or something. I don't know. Also, I was not in a good mind frame. I thought the world was ending. I thought Armageddon was happening. I thought that I needed to take a bath to cleanse myself from sin because I thought that there was going to be an apocalypse happening and I need to go someplace safe. So I picked the house and I went there. I thought I could survive the apocalypse there, which is a listen to myself say that now is completely insane and doesn't make any sense. And I'm kind of embarrassed to kind of say that that's what my thoughts were, but that's truly what my thoughts were at the time. And it didn't make sense back then. And uh, of course the apocalypse didn't happen and the world didn't end. And I ended up getting arrested. I do remember waking up in the hospital. I was in a room uh, observation room. I think I was handcuffed to like the bed or something. I remember being handcuffed and bitten by the police dog and having the marks on my arm and having the marks from the handcuffs on my wrist. And I remember I was, I was naked when I broke into the house because I believed that if I got naked, I would be invisible. I remember that. I kind of joke about it now, but it was pretty traumatic at the time to be taken into a police wagon, naked, handcuffed, 
you know, some of the police officers making fun of you because you're sitting there naked. Now, Pete, eventually you were able to get Kevin actual medical care, I, I, I believe hospitalization. Can you walk us through the events that led to that? Because it it seems like the arrest wasn't the impetus for him actually getting mental health care. It wasn't. And uh, thank you for pointing that out. So what happened is I get a call and it's a police officer and they say, uh, we've arrested your son. He broke into a stranger's house and I go rushing over. They had taken him to a mental health center, went rushing over and the police officer was standing outside. And he said, even though your son has told us that he has a mental illness, he's told us that he is uh, not taking medication, that he was found taking a bubble bath in a stranger's house. He will not be admitted to any mental health treatment facilities. We will take him to jail unless he convinces or you convince a psychiatrist that he's dangerous. I said, well, he hasn't threatened to kill me or anything. And he said, well, then he'll probably be taken to jail. So I actually, and this caused friction between us later on, and I've I'm embarrassed to say it, but I went and I lied. I said the psychiatrist that my son had threatened to kill me. And that was what was the impetus for him to have a 72-hour hold. And during that time, he was at a hospital. I think the treatment was simply just saying, take your medicine. Well, he had a hearing. And I was warned before the hearing that the administrative lawyer who was paid $50 a head to be one of these judges was inclined not to involuntarily commit people. He, he was opposed to involuntary commitment. Uh, luckily, when he asked Kevin, uh, Kevin replied, well, my dad thinks I need to be in the hospital. And so I guess I should be there. And that, again, just shows the weakness in our system. Here's someone who's very, very sick, and you have a system set up to not give them hospitalization or care, only because Kevin said that and then agreed to do it voluntarily was he put into the hospital. Then I was told by his doctor, a fabulous man, uh, 24 hours later, that they were going to discharge him because he was stable enough. He wasn't dangerous. And I was meeting with Kevin and I could tell he was still having issues. And that's when I called Mike Wallace and Wallace called the hospital and intimidated the hospital into keeping him for two weeks instead of releasing him in three days. And I'll never forget the when it was time for Kevin to be discharged, one of the nurses said to me, don't come pick him up. And I said, what? And said, don't come pick him up. That way we'll have to call social services because he'll be homeless and they'll take him to a shelter, but that will move him to the top of the line when it comes to getting mental health treatment. And I said, I'm not going to have my son go homeless. So I, I brought him home. And at that point, I, Kevin decided that I think that this was just a fluke. I began taking him to see a therapist. He did not want to go. There was nothing wrong with him. He did not have a mental illness. He did not want to take his medication. And in fact, when I took him to one therapy session, he turned his chair around and faced the doctor with his back. And, you know, people think that someone who's psychotic is psychotic 24 hours a day, and they never 
have moments of lucidity. And, you know, after he got out of the hospital, after a month or two, it, it seemed like everything was fine. And so he returned to, to New York. And uh, I think he felt like this was just a, a break. And in fact, doctors told us this may be a fluke. Maybe it just happened once. Kevin, what made you think that it was a fluke? Did you have any insight? Did you have lack of insight? Was it just wishful thinking? Was it ignorance? What made you just think, oh, this will never happen again? I think it was mostly pride. I, I fancy myself a pretty intelligent person. And I think it was just pride that I didn't have. I mean, I would go to the hospital. There'd be people licking the walls and banging on the piano and uh, yelling at the moon and everything. And I didn't want to think that I was in the same situation that they were in. I kind of wanted to think of myself in a different light. And it was mostly pride that I didn't want to be associated with them. I thought I was okay. I thought it was just a one-time thing. If I could write it off as a one-time thing, then I wouldn't have to deal with or address the issue. This kind of backtracking, but in this chronology, the first time Kevin showed signs of a, a break, he was not opposed to treatment. He knew something was wrong. Uh, this is when he was taking homeless people to breakfast and couldn't remember. He went voluntarily to see a psychiatrist. But what did that psychiatrist basically tell me? He said, look, if you're lucky, your son's taking drugs. If you're not, he has a mental illness. Lucky if my son's taking drugs? Well, a blood test showed he wasn't. Then he said, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Your son has bipolar disorder. He will probably, he will have this the rest of his life. He will probably be on medication the rest of his life. He will, it will gain weight. It can alter his moods. He probably will never marry. He probably will not be able to hold a job. He may end up homeless and in jail. And oh yeah, people with mental illness die 25 years before everyone else. That was the framework presented to me, to us, actually. So who would want to say, oh, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, I'm going to be mentally ill because look at what a great future I have. So I think that the system itself uh, presented itself in such a hostile way. I mean, my wife was uh, diagnosed with kidney cancer. What's the first thing we did? We read everything and we said, we're going to beat this. Well, I think Kevin felt the same way. I'm, I'll let him put words in his mouth, but I think he felt like I'm not one of these people. I'm not going to be homeless on the street. And so uh, part of that is refusing to acknowledge that something's wrong. Kevin, did you feel that the system was just so hostile you didn't want to be part of it? The reason I don't want to get involved with the system is because uh, I met with like four or five psychiatrists and they talked to me for like 15 minutes and just basic talk, not get to know me as a person. Like, oh, this is who you are. You have this diagnosis. You are this. Take this pill and then come see me in like two weeks. I'm like, you don't even know who I am. You didn't really get to know me. You're just telling me all this stuff about me like you're an expert and you met me for 15 minutes. How do you know all this? Now, as I've worked in the field for a while, I noticed that I did exhibit textbook symptoms of bipolar 
of manic depression. And I know that some of those things can be identified, but still 15 minutes doesn't feel as a person living with lived experience, it doesn't feel like you're really making an effort to really get to know somebody's whole life story when you just spend 15 minutes with them, then you write off a pill for them. I think Kevin really makes an excellent point. You know, of the seven psychiatrists he had when he was under my roof or under care or close to, only two had bothered to learn anything more than his symptoms and his name. And that's because we're going to pay him for a 15-minute med check and expect social workers to take care of him. And Kevin hits it exactly on the head. These are people who are struggling with brain illnesses. And it takes more than just sticking a pill in someone's mouth and shoving them out the door. You also have to treat the person and the heart. And uh, I will disagree. Kevin now is uh, in the mental health treatment world and doing great. But I disagree that things have changed as much as he believes they have. I think that if you had a breakdown like Kevin did today in the United States, the chances, I believe, the last study I showed were three to one that you'd end up in jail rather than in a hospital. And we still have a system that only applies Band-Aids, only wants to take care of people when they hit rock bottom. And sadly, I believe our system is designed to provide the least services to the sickest and provide more services. And part of that is the others are easier to treat. um, Eventually, when you lose a parent, you never get over it, but you learn to live with it. And that's more, I think, gives people more satisfaction. It's easier to treat than someone who has a long and persistent case of depression, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder. Pete, back to you for a moment. You describe a lot of this as you telling Kevin what to do, you telling Kevin's doctors what to do, you being angry. But then at some point, (laughs) there seems to be a switch where you and Kevin became partners at this. And and you've described in in your writings and in your speeches that this worked better. Can you talk about that? When I finished the book, you know, publishers want an optimistic end. And uh, so the book ends with Kevin and I having a stake together and him saying, don't worry, dad, this is going to be fine. Well, that was actually the beginning of what was then six years and five more hospitalizations and Kevin getting tasered by the police. And um, I did everything wrong, but everything that a parent thinks is right. And what I mean by that, well, Kevin was living with me. So one day I sat down, I took a legal pad and I put um, when you're doing well and when you're not. And I wrote down when he was doing well, I wrote down who he wasn't. Then I said, oh, look, Kevin, on the side you're doing well is when you're taking medication. And on the side when you're not doing well is when you're not. Well, you can't argue logic with a, a mind that's not logical and doesn't want to hear what you're saying. So then I tried bribery and I said, Kevin, I'll pay you 50 bucks a week if you take your medication. And he he may not remember this, but his response was, I'm not a prostitute, dad. You're not gonna get me to, to pay me take meds. Then I tried duplicity. I actually ground up his medication. I put it in his cereal and he was suspicious. Well, he got furious, understandably. 
if anything, in his psychosis, it made him more suspicious of me. And my reaction was very typical. Uh, the golden rule. I have the gold, I get to rule. You're living in my house, you'll do what I say or you don't live here. And he proceeded to say a few words you can't say in a podcast and demanded be driven to his mother's house and because uh, we were divorced. And in route, he actually leapt out of the car because he was so angry and we were fighting so much. This made it clear to me that I needed to rethink. And I did more research, I talked to more experts, and I realized that you have to be, you have to try to get in the person's mind and recognize the, ask them, what are you trying to accomplish? Okay, how can we do this together? And a lot of parents poo-poo this, but it sends a message that you want to be a partner, that you want to listen to them. And that, you know, when you're having a mental health crisis and you're already confused, having someone come in who says, you're going to do this or else, it's very, it may provide a temporary treatment, force you into treatment, but in the long run, that person's still resistant. Um, so what happened then was Kevin ended up uh, getting tasered by the police because he was psychotic. And we actually called the police thinking that that would be helpful. And they came and he can tell you what happened, but he ended up getting tasered by the police. He's lucky again that he, he wasn't shot and, and killed at that point. Several years go by, he is at the house. It's, I believe, Thanksgiving. He's off his meds. He knows I can tell he's off his meds. He jumps in his car. He goes driving off. I call and call. He answers the phone finally. And I say, where are you going? He says, I'm going to heaven. Well, that doesn't exactly make me feel confident. Um, he then calls me. He's run out of gas. And I, I said to him, well, let's go get gas. I'll give you, I'll come down. No, don't come. We'll go get gas. Dad, if I step out of this car, I'm going to die. And, you know, that was ridiculous, but that's what he believed. And so I did what no father should do. He got gas. He drove psychotic up 95. He went off the road, I think, twice. Luckily, no one was hurt. He wasn't stopped. He told me there was a safe place, a house he'd heard about from a friend. He wanted to go there. I took him there. And uh, a moment of release uh, I'm feeling much calmer. And he got up in the middle of the night. I'm jumping way ahead, Gabe. I hope that's okay. Uh, but I took him to this house in the middle of the night, checked him in. I finally felt, well, he's in a safe place. Well, he got up in the middle of the night. He took off all his clothes because it made him invisible, and he went walking down the street. Now, at this stage, we finally get help. What happens is a CIT, crisis intervention trained police officer, sees him, and he talks to him as a person. And he says, well, get in my car. We're going to go to the emergency room. And Kevin says, don't handcuff me. That's when I got tasered. So they drive to an emergency room, and on route, he says, what kind of music do you like? And Kevin says, rap, and he actually turns on a rap station. And when they get to the hospital, Kevin actually thanks him. I mean, this is better than a taxi ride. I mean, he thanks him. That officer then stayed there. And when the doctor said, well, walking naked isn't dangerous, the CIT officer said, well, maybe we'll drop him off on your front lawn. And all of a sudden, he's admitted into the hospital. And this is where life finally, the magic strikes. And it's not me. 
he gets a wonderful case manager and she steps in and she says, why don't you take medication? And she finds him a doctor who works with him and talks with him and gets him on medication that at the time, Kevin tells me, he doesn't even have any side effects. Then she says, don't live with your dad. It's not good for your mental health. (laughs) So she gets him in an apartment with two guys with schizophrenia. And I'm shocked because I see how much pride he has, his independence. He's old enough that he doesn't want to live with dad. And then she says, what are you going to do? And, and he says, well, what I can do, um, you know, I have a, she says, knock it off, control the illness, get a job. So he becomes the uh, guy who picks up carts. Um, maybe I should let Kevin tell this part because he then is seen by one of his therapists and he thinks the therapist is mocking him um, because he says, you're doing great, Kevin. And uh, Kevin seeing everybody else move on with their life and he's picking up cards. He has a college degree. People are getting married, but he goes and talks to this group and he realizes he is doing great. And that's when he decides to become a peer specialist and he undergoes the training and he becomes someone who is helping other people with mental illness. And it gives him a new purpose in life. And I think it was important that he went from someone who needed help to someone who could help others. And I think that's a key to a lot of this and why I'm so big on peer and people with living experience, uh, helping others and and running the system rather than just all of us parents, which a lot of parents do not like. But it gave him a new purpose. And the mental illness also gave me a new purpose uh, rather than just writing books for profit and telling great stories. Kevin, the spotlight is now on you. What was that process like for you? Because I imagine it was a lot of negotiations. Did you trust that your dad was serious about partnership or did you think it was another ploy, like, you know, mixing pills and cereal? What was all of this like from your perspective? I think a big part of it was not living under the same roof as him because I know he's very hard line on the my, my roof, my rules type of thing. And having that distance enabled us to kind of uh, develop a relationship where, I mean, the way my dad is, I mean, you can probably tell this from the interview, he he has his view of how he wants things to go. And if I don't fit into that, there are, you know, he's doing what he wants to do to try to get my life the way he wants it to go sometimes. And of course, I respond to that too. I react sometimes to that too. But I think as far as a partnership, we, I think in every relationship, there needs to be a little bit of forgiveness. And if you don't have that, you can't really have a mature relationship. So he would have to forgive me for things I would do or say, and I would have to do the same. And negotiation, kind of coming to a middle ground, kind of understanding why the other person is thinking this way. And maybe he can think about what I'm going through. Maybe I can think about what he's going through as a parent and making concessions and kind of having a mature discussion, but it takes years to develop that sort of relationship. It takes years to develop that trust and that understanding and kind of see a common ground. I think also you're giving me more power than I had. Kevin can address this, but he woke up after his fifth hospitalization. And that's when he decided on his own that 
he had a mental illness. And I think that was crucial. And then the second step was that he got a case manager and you're giving me credit for what she did. He listened to her. They had this bond that he knew they, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but she's the one who actually got him to the right services that were the most helpful for him. At that stage, I'm backing out. So it's easy for me to say I'm a partner because I didn't have to do anything. And that's how the system should be. Kevin, do you agree with that? Do you think that you learned more from the case manager than you did from your father as it comes to treating and living with a severe and persistent mental illness? I learned from both of them. I don't think I can measure who I learned more from, but I picked up things from both of them. And uh, I think what's crucial to recovery is I use the phrase all the time. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So I had many opportunities in my life where people were leading me to water, but it wasn't until I started drinking that I started to recover. And in the work that I do, I get frustrated too, because I work with clients who uh, are in the same place in their recovery that I was in years ago, and they don't want to drink the water, the water being the services and the treatment and things they need to do to address their mental health challenges. And uh, I get frustrated too sometimes, but I got to remember that everybody's in their own stage of recovery and everyone has their own pace and not everyone is going to recover, unfortunately, the way that I have recovered. Hopefully they can. And my job is to inspire them and hopefully they can get to a level where I'm at, but they have to be willing to put the work in too. Now, Kevin, in addition to being a mental health advocate, you're also a musician and an artist. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well, please? Well, I did go to art school, so I do have training as a painter. I studied fine art with a concentration in painting. So uh, I do do a lot of painting. I do visual art. I do portraits. And I've been infatuated with rap music and music in general since I was a little kid. And I release albums all the time. Once the pandemic ends, I'll probably get back to doing shows again. But um, I love making music. It helps keep me sane. It helps me kind of sort out my thoughts. I put them into song format. I listen to them and it helps me think about what I've been through, what I'm going through. And I know it helps other people to listen to it too. So um, I just enjoy making art and making music. And I enjoy helping people out. So that's kind of what I do. Pete, I'm going to ask a similar question of you. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that it took me three or four years to figure out that you weren't just a prominent mental health advocate. You've actually written a lot of spy novels. In the same vein as Kevin, when you're not a mental health advocate, what do you do? What's your fun? (laughs) I do a lot of work. (laughs) I'm uh, finishing my 22nd book. It's nonfiction. It's about a fellow who I met in 1987 who spent 36 years in total isolation in the prison system after he murdered a a correctional officer. And during that time, we corresponded and kept in touch and uh, we're similar age. And I remember getting up in the morning and having kids and going through a divorce and getting remarried and my life going on all the while this guy's sitting in a cell all by himself. So it's an interesting book to do. 
I spend most of uh, about 50% of my time working on a mental health blog. Uh, and uh, I, for fun, what do I do? I spend time with my granddaughter. I spend every, usually every Thursday, Kevin and I uh, compete with one of his brothers and my wife playing pool and darts. Uh, he's better at darts. I'm better at pool. And uh, we uh, try to enjoy life. I have a little uh, 1967 Austin Healy sports car I drive around and uh, like to bike and, uh, you know, try to en enjoy life. I wonder how much longer I'm going to be as active in uh, mental health as I am simply because I'm about to turn 70 and uh, I want to uh, take time to smell the roses. There absolutely unequivocally need to be more Kevin Early. There need to be more Gabe Howards. And that starts by having more Pete Early's, Kevin Early's, Gabe Howards. Support your local mental health charity. Get involved. Let our politicians know that we don't want people slipping through the cracks. We all deserve an opportunity to lead our absolute best life. Thanks for listening to Voices of Nexus. Don't forget to check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook.